This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. Well, today we are so excited. We have Brad Fetterman, and Brad is a well-known author, has written many, many books, but his most recent book that we're going to talk about today is called Cultivating Culture, and I love the subtitle. It says 101 Ways to Foster Engagement in 15 Minutes or Less, and I was also excited to know that Brad is uh, in the same uh, area that we are, in Memphis, Tennessee. So welcome, Brad, to Connecting the Dots podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. And since we are in the same city, one of these days we have to sit down for coffee or something. How's that? Oh, I, I would love Certainly that. Certainly, we'd love to do that. Okay. Brad, uh, once again, thank you for being here. And it is it is good to have somebody from from the mid south. Uh, not not that we don't don't appreciate all of our other guests, but it, it is good having somebody from the south. But uh, before we get started, want to tell us a little bit about yourself, about your career, and what you're doing. Sure. So. I run a company called Performance Point. Our mission is to inspire others to discover and live their possible. You know, the reality is I think most organizations and individuals are blocked from achieving what they want to and can achieve. And so our goal is to to help them achieve that. We do that through engaging employees, building resilient relationships and and focusing on creating agile collaborative cultures that are comfortable with change or at least are able to change with the times. And so that's really where our focus is. And we do that both with executives, leaders, uh, but with organizations as a whole as well. And and I'm very passionate about it. I've been in this business for a while now and uh, I love what I do. And that's why I keep doing it. That's great. How did you how did you get to this point? How did you get into a company that that helps develop and build and improve uh, organizations cultures? You know, I think the the irony is I was I was working internally for other companies, Norel Services, Humana Inc. I took executive jobs. I, I really enjoyed um, that work. I was recruited out by a consulting firm and I was asked to help um, help the consulting firm grow. And I was doing that in the field. Actually, it was in D.C., Maryland area. They asked me to move to Memphis to help them grow and to look for an exit strategy for the owner. And as a part of that process, ironically, I was told you'll never have to work again in your life, right? Once we do this, so much money, you'll never have to work again in your life. As we get closer to the deal, because we actually grew the company well enough and created a merger roll-up opportunity for the owner to exit, as he got closer to his exit, we were trying to get our agreement signed that said, hey, we're, we're going to get this money. It was me and this, and this one other person. And as we got closer to the, to the, um, to the plane leaving the runway, uh, he kept making changes to our agreement. And then the plane was taking off, the merger roll-up was happening, and our agreement was signed, and I still needed to work, right? And I ended up saying to myself, well, you know, I did this for somebody else. Why not do it for myself this time, right? So I went and decided to start a company, Performance Point, with the mindset that most organizations are using training, consulting, and management firms that have theories and experiences that are focused and centered in the 80s, sometimes in the 70s. 
And I don't know about you, but I think the workplace in 2022 looks very different than the workplace in 1980. So our mindset was, let's focus on rethinking leadership, rethinking culture, rethinking the way organizations function, the way leaders should function for this moment in time. And then let's keep that going. So what you'll find is we're very fluid in our work. We we have models and theories and, and research, but we'll change it based on the times, based on shifts in the workplace. Whereas a lot of people get set on a model, they benchmark the model, they've got a lot of data around the model, and those organizations stick to what those benchmarks are, and they don't change their models with the changing times. So I think it's one of the strengths we bring to the table is we are really about what you're going through here and now. Well, well Brad, I, I, Brad, that is that's great. Sorry to interrupt you, HF. No, go ahead. Uh, I mean, I think about the time that we're recording this right now. You know, we're hearing phrases like the Great Resignation. We're seeing uh, major issues uh, occurring in the labor market. How do we think about the labor market? You know, can people work virtually? Can people, do they have to be in person? Does it have to be in hybrid? And, you know, you wrote this book, Cultivating Culture. Uh, what's the takeaway from the book? What, what is, when someone reads the book, what's the takeaway and how does that apply to what we're seeing all throughout the United States today uh, in these almost, you could call it shifting sands of culture? Sure. I think a couple of takeaways. One is, Culture is not a set it and forget it effort. You know, all too many times companies have these wonderful cultural retreats. They spend all this time talking about culture and then they go back to work. Well, culture it has to be woven into the way we work every single day. I think the second thing is we we don't tackle issues like culture unless we have an exorbitant amount of time. I don't know about you, but that doesn't exist anymore for most of us, right? And so to me, the only way you can really tackle culture is to nurture it in short bursts of time. Hence the subtitle, 15 minutes or less. It is a playbook written for an environment where you can't afford to pull people off the floor for a half day or a day at a time. It's, it's written so that you can weave this into the way you work every single day and reinforce your culture every single day. That was the second I think key takeaway, and the, and the third one I'd say is that culture is a shared experience. It used to be that we looked at it from a top-down perspective. Leaders set the culture, they told you what the culture is, that's it. Well, the truth is we live in a time where the hierarchy is either dead or dying. We have an ever-changing constant. You know, the, the reality is they say the next 10 years, you're going to see 100 years worth of change. So think about the last century and everything that happened in your next 10 years. You're going to experience the equivalent that is going to be hard for a lot of people to swallow. That's a lot of resilience there, um, a lot of agility. And so, you know, you're living in a time where everything's changing and we have more diversity going on than ever before. And so I use a couple of examples to sort of paint a picture. We've lost our ability to have shared norms. 
you know, think about this. I've opened the door for one woman and been told thank you, and I've opened up the door for another woman and been told I'm a male chauvinist pig. Mm. Um, by the way, I open up the door for men and women. I just think it's polite. Uh, I have sat in a room where I have friends who happen to be African-American, and they argue over which term is the appropriate term. Is it a person of color? Is it African-American? Is it, is it black? We don't even have standards and, and amongst our own subgroups anymore. The truth is we live in a world of severe individualism where everybody gets to pick and choose what they want, and we've lost that sense of connection, glue, shared experiences and norms. And so the book is written to take culture out of leads of out of the hands of just leaders and put it in the hands of everybody in a way that allows anyone and everyone to foster a common shared understanding and a way of doing business so that we can move forward together. You know, it's, it's so it's so interesting that you that you mentioned that culture can't be dictated, you know, from the top. It's kind of like saying, you know, that the, the beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> you know, it just it just doesn't work. But, you know, this this podcast is, is connecting the dots and, and it's really geared toward toward continuous improvement. But I think this may be, I don't know, 101 or 102 episodes one of the one of the recurring themes is that no matter what kind of improvement strategy that you have or what kind of tool the the you know the brightest new tool and strategy to to do that improvement without the culture to back it up it's just not going to work talk to us a little bit about that tell us tell us just why is the culture so important i think it's it's important because it's simply a shared way of doing things and if you create a shared way of doing things that actually supports your brand promise, supports your purpose, your identity, then you're not only doing well together, but you're doing well together in the benefit of your customers, your consumers. In your case, in a hospital, your patients. And, and if they can feel that and see that and experience it, then the the sense of connection with your institution, with your hospital, uh, is amazing. And they will choose to come to your hospital. They will choose to utilize your doctors. They will choose to get their elective surgeries there because of that image, that reputation, that culture. Because all, all a brand promise and identity is, is when the culture resonates with your customers or your patients, right? It is reflective of their experience and their experience is, I have a consistent experience with this hospital because of the way they operate. And the only way you can create that is when everybody's in it together and doing it in the same vein and same way. Another way to think about culture is that it is simply the behaviors we're willing to tolerate. So I always say this, it, it isn't about what you're like on your best day. It's about what you're like on your worst day, but more importantly, it's, it's about what you're like on your worst day and then how you handle that, mm -hmm. right? So you shouldn't be <clears throat> damned, excuse the expression, because you made a mistake. But if you cover it up, if you ignore it, if you won't acknowledge it, well then, yes, your culture's lowered. If you make the mistake and you own up to it, 
you apologize, you work through it, and you make sure it doesn't happen again, then your culture rises. So it's really about the way you approach it that matters. You know, I, I, I think one of the best examples we can give is, you know, I think of Matt Lauer. You know, if you were anyone else at NBC Studios, you're just a basic producer, uh, you're someone working on the set, and you behaved in the way that he behaved, your career would be cut short. There would be no expectation of, of grace. But because Matt Lauer was the face of NBC, of, N, of the Today Show, and because he was a moneymaker for that organization, they let it go. That behavior continued until it blew up. And the pain it caused for that organization was severe. And the reason being is we tend to tolerate bad behavior from those people that are what we would consider special, right? They bring in more money. They have a big reputation. They're a very well-educated uh, in the hospital system, a very well-educated specialist doctor or surgeon, mm. <laughs> right? And um, the problem with that is when you make special exceptions for people like that, what you basically said is that is our culture. So if you're allowed to act the way you want to, even though nobody else can, the way they act isn't the culture, it's the way you act becomes the culture. And, and, and I think it also sends the wrong message because it tells people that there are certain people who are special and other people who are not. Quite frankly, I think everyone in my organization, and I think we should think about this in any organization, Anyone in your organization is special. Everyone in your organization is special. They all impact the success of the organization and the experience of the customer. And if that's the case, we all need to be in it together, which means we need a shared way of doing things. No exceptions. No exceptions whatsoever. I don't care if you're the CEO. Really good. Really good. So I know that we can't go through all 101 ways. But but give us a couple, uh, you know, give us a couple fastballs or maybe a couple curveballs. I'm during baseball season while we record <laughs> this, and I'm, I'm hoping my my beloved St. Louis Cardinals go all the way this year. So give me a couple fastballs or curveballs, and give me a couple ways that we can foster engagement in 15 minutes or less. Wow. All right. So you know, there's an activity in the in the book. I think it's really good. Uh, and and essentially, what you do is you you ask people, it's about familiarity. Sometimes when things get familiar, we take things for granted. And the whole concept is, what are we taking for granted and how do we get past that? How do we begin to look at things anew again? And so one of the ways that we do that is we ask people to describe or even draw um, something they're very familiar with. In this case, we use a penny a lot of times and, and a penny is something that everyone's seen, everyone's handled, everyone's touched. I think by the time you're in your late 20s, you've seen it over 30,000 times. The, the numbers are actually in the book. And, 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 and so there's no excuse for people not to be able to draw that penny, right? But when they start to go draw that penny, they realize there's, a, there's some major blanks in there, right? They're missing a lot of information. How can I see a penny all the time and not be able to draw it? Well, the same reason you could walk through a hospital and not recognize a light is out. The same reason mm -hmm. you can, all the things that happen that you take for granted, if you've ever driven home and don't <clears> remember <throat> to drive, that's a perfect example. You know, 
our brain does a lot of things unconsciously. We fill in the blanks for our conscious brain because we're just good at that, right? It helps us save time and energy and make decisions quickly. But in the process of doing that, we miss certain things, right? It's selective attention, if you will. And so the exercise allows people to recognize it. And then we debrief that. We have a series of questions we use. They're in the book. So you don't even have to come up with the questions, the way to debrief. It's all the instructions are in the book, even key points that you want to come out of the exercise. And when we're done, people have this beautiful conversation and recognition that as good as I am, there are probably things that I'm not paying attention to that I need to pay attention to. And you reconnect that with those individuals and they, they walk back into work that day and they are so much more observant. They see things they haven't seen in a long time. And it's a powerful experience. That's one of the examples I would give. That, that's that's awesome. And I, I, I mean, I I, uh, I look forward to uh, to digging into the book and, and looking at some of the ways because I can even envision, you know, thinking in the hospital setting, you know, hospitals are busy. And like you said, we don't we don't have always have the time to go on a two or three day retreat. And most of the time, that's usually just the leadership team. And, you know, I could see a nurse manager on the floor you know, taking some of these some of these things with her team. Absolutely. And, and you know, at, during their daily huddle or whatnot and saying, OK, well, today during our daily huddle, we're going to we're going to do a, an exercise. And, you know, I, I think that that's really awesome. You know, in the book, we actually have a huddle agenda at the end of the book, and it shows you where to put each of these kinds of activities. And and it's it's built for that manner. We call them stand ups, huddles, culture workouts. I believe there are three core types of meetings, okay? One type of meeting is the dreaded, and I'm gonna say dreaded, update meeting, where you sit in a meeting with a bunch of people and you're passive and you sit there and you wait till someone gets finished telling you everything they're doing. And then you pay attention when it's your turn to talk, right? In fact, I worked with one organization that had two to three hour update meetings and the cameras were all off. And so I interviewed the folks and asked why their cameras were off. And they said, well, we're not being asked to make decisions. We're not, asked to be asked, we're not being asked to collaborate. We're not discussing anything. It's the most passive experience in the world. So I shut my camera off so I could do the dishes. I shut my camera off so I could do laundry. Or I shut my camera off so I could write a report. Or I could do email. And, and so you're, if you're in person, the worst part about it is you can't do all those things. So you're not productive. But you're not really paying attention either, right? So updates for the I sake have, of I have no experience with that skip do you <laughs> updates <laughs> for the sake of updating I think can be done via email um it's just a lot easier so then that brings me to the second type of meeting the second type of meeting is um, the meetings that happen because they're really work sessions right we are actually collaborating we're actually making decisions working through things here's the problem with those meetings we invite everyone and their mother to those meetings and then what ends up happening is nothing really gets done so the three or four people that needed to meet have another meeting on top of it to get the work done they were supposed to get done during that meeting and so i actually encourage my clients to take um, something called racy which if you're in project management you've heard um, and i actually ask them to use it in a very simplified form racy stands for four things who's responsible who's accountable who needs to be consulted and who needs to be informed right now it's a complicated process you use for project management but in this case i say to people whoever is accountable and responsible needs to be in that meeting 
if you need to consult with someone, you should do that before the meeting or consult with them after the meeting based on what the output of the meeting is. And by the way, if people need to be informed when you have the decision making done, then you can send an email out to them. And if you handled your work sessions that way, they would be much shorter. You'd save time and a lot of people wouldn't have to be in them and they would save time, which means there is no excuse for not regularly creating a cadence for a huddle or stand-up or culture workout meeting, which is the kind that we think needs to happen on a regular basis with everyone on your team, in some cases daily, in other cases weekly, in other cases possibly monthly. But regardless of what your role is and what type of organization you're in, at least 12 times a year, you should be exploring your culture and your values and what makes this place special. And if you did that regularly, and in some cases daily, Wow, what a difference that would make. We've seen absenteeism, rate, absenteeism rates go down. We've seen productivity rates go up. Customer service scores go up. Safety scores um, go up. All kinds of things change because people revisit this stuff on a regular basis. They nurture it. Culture is a living, breathing thing that needs to be cared for. And that's what this book is all about, is it's trying to give people a playbook to care and nurture their culture regularly. So, okay, this is really, really good. So let me take it a different angle. Um, you know, one of the things that our group has learned uh, over the last year from Dr. Edgar Schein is, is how to go from a transactional uh, relationship uh, within a culture to an open and trustful relationship. And, and they coined this word called how to personize things, which technically is not a word, you know, uh, but basically what it means is in some respects, good old fashioned getting to know each other. So I could tell you from my friend here, Dr. H.F. Mason, I know that he has five kids. I, I know that he was a star quarterback in high school. I know that he's a general surgeon. I could go on and on and on. I know that he speaks Spanish fluently and he knows things about me. Are there exercises in the book to where a small team could start to get to know each other? Absolutely there are, and that's important. We believe culture should be, and organization should be human-centric, which is exactly what you just described. Nothing gets done without people. You know, we spend so much time talking about products, services, and, you know, you're in the hospitals, the right sutures, the right, but the right sutures don't get ordered unless you have a good person in that role who cares about the organization. You know, ORs get double booked because people aren't paying attention because of the same reasons. Nothing happens unless you have great people working well together. And that happens because we know each other. We trust each other. We're not fearful. Things are transparent. And so, yes, significant portions of the book center and cater to that a great deal um, we believe that you have to bring your whole self to work and just because you walk through those doors doesn't mean that stops right if you're going through a divorce when you walk through the doors you're still going through the divorce if i've been diagnosed with cancer when i walk through the doors i'm still diagnosed with cancer the idea that i have to separate my personal life and my business life, my professional life, is absolutely ridiculous. It's It doesn't make any sense. Now, I can't walk into a hospital and lose it because of my personal life, but I can't let go of it either. So we believe, and our three rules that we use um, are, are this. Cultures, if they're healthy, allow people 
to know themselves better, to become more self-aware. That's a sign of a healthy culture, that, a, that, a, that an organization helps someone learn about themselves. They can hold a mirror up in a healthy way for that person. The second attribute of a healthy culture, and the book is built around these kinds of principles, is that you are able to learn about other people's stories and develop empathy for them, even if you're uniquely different. Right. That doesn't mean that you'll always agree with each other, but you can see value in them as a human being and have empathy for them along the way, regardless if you are different. Okay. And then the third one is in order for those to happen, a culture must allow us to be vulnerable in each in front of each other and heal in front of each other. And if you have a culture that allows you to do that, then you have a human centric culture where people know things about each other. We have exercises in here about things like um, recognition and appreciation. And one of the things that we, we get people to do is we get people to write down things like the names of the people that work for them. And we'll ask them, do you know how each person on your team likes to be recognized? You know, do they like to be recognized in front of a group? Do they like to be recognized with a pat on the back, a thank you note, an email where you copy your boss and your boss's boss? Do you know? Most people don't know. They'll ask them, do you know how often they like to be recognized? Um, and they'll say, what do you mean? You know, and we have this conversation. Well, some people like to be recognized every day. And if they don't, it, it hurts, right? And some people, they don't want to be recognized hardly at all. Their work speaks for themselves in their mind. And if you recognize them on a regular basis, they feel like it's patronizing. And they realize they don't have those answers. And then do you know what they um like to be recognized for being, do I like to be recognized for just doing a good job, for doing something really well, doing something out of my job scope? And most people don't know that. And so what we find is that people have a tendency to recognize others, but they don't actually recognize others in a way that the person can digest it and appreciate it. So I can recognize people to the cows come home, but if I'm not doing it a way that works for you, that's not recognition, that's discomfort. And so it backfires. And the only way that you can recognize people well is to know them, to know them well, right? And so we want you to know about their personal life, but we also want you to know about their preferences. And their exercises in the book get at both of those things. Well, that, that's, you know, that's really good. Um, one question I had was, you know, I think, I think we all would recognize a bad culture, <clears throat> but even within good cultures, there there are a lot of different types of good cultures. But are there some common themes? I mean, you you mentioned you know getting to know the people, but it, you know is is it respect? I mean, does every good culture have res does that make sense? What are some sure. you know? I, I think there are some different characteristics that great cultures have. Um, and then I'm going to give you exceptions to that rule. So um, a, a couple of things. One is I think there's there are two two kind of levers or or measurements that we use to look at culture and determine how how strong they are and how good they are. Right. So one is, is it negative or positive? Right. And the other one is, is it weak or strong? You know, if it's negative and weak, that's perilous. If it's negative and strong, that's toxic. Mm. If it is weak and positive it's got potential and if it's if it's positive and strong it's 
captivating, right? It's an incredible culture. Now, you can take the negative and have exceptions for that. What do I mean by that? A great example would be if I, I think the most important thing about a culture beyond being healthy and positive is that it's transparent. So if I'm transparent and it's a rough and tumble culture, but I know what I'm walking into and I'm willing to make the trade, then I'll make an argument that that's not necessarily a bad culture. For instance, Amazon. Amazon's known for having a rough and tumble culture, but a lot of people are willing to trade three to five years and work at Amazon because what you get out of it has real value. Working with Steve Jobs was not easy. The culture at Apple was not easy. But if I had a chance to work directly with Steve Jobs and I know what I'm walking into, there's a value equation there that makes it worth it. You so always I'm know where you stand. That, what was that? I said you always know where you stand. As long, yeah, as long as you know where you stand, that's the key. Now, I think that's hard to keep going over the long term. It's not sustainable. So what do I mean by that? Even Amazon's looking at the fact that the turnover is too hard and that they're struggling to keep enough people and they think they're going to be um, at a loss for people going forward. They're looking at their culture and reevaluating it because it's not sustainable to have that rough and tumble culture long term. The flip side is also true that you can get so captivating that you can create a cult like culture. And I think there's uh. a there's a line albeit maybe fine between cult and culture and, and captivation, cult and culture. I think a healthy culture is one where you people can bring their whole self to work. A healthy culture is where people can challenge the status quo. A healthy culture is where you can have disagreement. A cult-like culture means that you have to give up of yourself for the greater good. A cult-like culture means that you group think is the way to go. A cult-like culture is one where you are not allowed to challenge um, the status quo because you're, you're subservient. You know, you're not really a collegial, right? It's not human-centric. The greater good is more important and you have to sacrifice yourself for the greater good. Uh, and so I think the, the reality is you have to watch both the negative culture on the one side that gets really toxic, but you can get away with it because you're bleeding edge technology or whatever the case may be. You've got to watch that. And you have to watch the cult like culture on the other end of captivation where you forget the basic principles that people should bring their whole self to work and they should be able to have open, challenging discussions, productive, functional, professional debates, but they should have debates. Well, Brad, this is fantastic. I cannot yes. wait to get into the book. The thing I really liked is when you talked about creating those habits, those routines with the 15 minutes, just like most people can relate to driving to work and driving home and never remembering the drive. Um, um, and so using those bursts of 15 minutes, not in an episodic way, but more in a routine and habit forming way. And uh, I'm really excited about this work. I've heard you speak on many other podcasts, Brad, and, and, and very thankful for you and the work that you're doing and so grateful uh, that you came on the podcast. And so on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, big, big, big thank you, my friend, and keep on doing this really important work. My pleasure. Thank you, Brad. Thank you for having me. Thank you both. I appreciate it.